0: Vienna was once the capital of a vast and mighty Habsburg Empire, and while its political power is long gone since it lost World War I, it's still the home of a rich Habsburg heritage, and it's one of Europe's most livable cities. The emperor may be gone, but that culture is still king, and when we think about enjoying the culture of Europe, Vienna certainly has to be high on your list. I know Fred Plotkin agrees with that. And Fred is um, an aficionado of of European culture. He's written guidebooks on opera and on Italian cuisine. And uh, for Fred, Vienna is a very important stop. Fred, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You write that sometimes you just need a good dose of Vienna. What do you mean by that?
1: Vienna is, and I can say this publicly, I know people think of me with Italy, and that's absolutely correct. But outside of Italy, it's my favorite city in Europe and it ranks with New York and Buenos Aires among my three favorite in the world. Here is a city of about two million people that was built on the idea that we can enjoy life, we share life over wine, and by the way, this city grows more wine grapes in the city limits than any capital in the world, and that all of it has to be abetted deepened, contrasted by culture, by philosophy, by ideas. It has had a history of phenomenal cultural achievement, occasionally and sadly terrible prejudice that has underlined and often persecuted the the hatred of certain artists. But this contrast and flow of ideas, never easy, nonetheless has created an environment that even today more than ever, is bubbling with ideas, culture, modernity. The Viennese, we think of them as being whipped cream and and Mozart and waltzes. It is all that, but it's also a city that even today is very cutting edge. You know, when you think of
0: cutting edge, I just think one of the most dramatic sort of cutting edge times was during the early 1900s. The end of the whole notion of divine monarchs and the Habsburgs. And in Vienna, you had all this literature and philosophy and architecture. Actually, physically, in a showdown, you'd have modern buildings staring down the the facade, the Baroque facade of the Habsburgs' palace.
1: Well, don't forget, living in Vienna at that time and then sadly driven out of Vienna about 20 years later was Dr. Sigmund Freud. He's the person who redefined the passions of the mind He met local patients. He looked at the Viennese Society. He observed people at play, at work, in restaurants. And out of that, he's the man who defined why we do what we do, what human impulses are about. So Vienna is a city that launched the way we see ourselves more than any other Hmm. place. In that context, people would create things of great beauty, but they also had to be functional. So we think of Baroque swirls, but Vienna's the place that created the clean lines of Jungenstil, the Young Style. Mm -hmm. It's the city that pioneered design of housing for artists in the 1920s. It's a city that promoted forward-looking artistic creation. We know Mozart, Schubert, Haydn, Beethoven as the first Viennese school, But the second Viennese school of music, Schoenberg, Berg, and others, were the ones who completely turned music on its head, created the 12-tone scale, and invited the people to look toward the future in music when everybody else was still stuck in the 19th century.
0: I wonder how much all of this embrace of life and passion for the future and everything has to do with the fact that they were once basically the ultimate superpower in Europe, and then they lost that, and... Maybe they realized what's more important.
1: Well, I think in part we have to go back to about 1740 when Empress Maria Theresa took the throne and she ruled until 1780. She's the person who fostered love of the arts. She commissioned painters. She had buildings built. She taught royal cooks to express themselves in food. Every aspect of the human experience and the pleasure experience in life was something that she promoted and not just for the ruling classes. And that's the main difference, say, between there and Paris or London. In Vienna, everybody could partake of the culture. It was the first place to have schools that trained people in crafts. So that wherever you went, people learned how to make things, to do things. Everybody was productive. And because a violin could be played in the church, it meant that anyone could have contact with music. Therefore, she democratized culture. She democratized Mm. art. So moving all the way forward, that tradition was there no matter what the political situation was. And ultimately, when the Habsburgs fell at the end of the First World War, what the people were left with was their cultural heritage. And it was from there that they picked up again, and they understood that to move forward, we need to advance our culture, not just live in the past, but advance it. And what then happened, all the tragedy of World War II, certainly Austria was completely on the wrong side of that, but nonetheless, when they came out of that again, the people began to gather their wits and rebuild their society by building on the culture. Now, even today, as
0: a traveler, you can enjoy this passion for making high culture accessible to the, to the common people.
1: There are art galleries all over Vienna. We don't think of the city necessarily as a city of painters and artists, but Klimt was there and Schiele... And many great artists gathered, visual artists gathered in Vienna, Kokoschko being another. So that galleries all the time are showing new works by the next generation of artists. There are little music scenes, not only the Vienna State Opera, but places where people are performing, writing, and creating new music. Even if you go to the Stadtpark, the Stadtpark is right. sort of the central park of Vienna, you find statues of musicians, but underneath that you find people creating performances. It's rather remarkable, this creative impulses there in everyone.
0: Every time I go to Vienna, I just find there's sort of an ongoing festival, and it doesn't even have to be a, a festival as such. I know that at pretty substantial expense, I think, they, they turn the whole park in front of the city hall into a concert hall for 60 nights in a row in July and August. They've got a 60-foot wide screen, 3,000 folding chairs, there's a big food circus there with 20 or 30 stalls. And the city pays for this. And I was talking to an official there, and they said they're just really wanting to make sure young people get exposed to classical music. And uh, this is just one more example of how, even in tough economic times, they will prioritize for this.
1: Austria is a nation of 7 million people. I live in New York City, which has more than 8 million people. You have to imagine that this little country with this amazing artistic heritage could make itself a generic country like all the others, or it could be the citadel of culture. But to do that, every citizen needs to learn the value of it, not from a snob point of view, Mm -hmm. but from an identity point of view. Hmm. And what I love about the Austrians, if you go to Salzburg, which is a more conservative city, they nonetheless tolerate some of the most radical, way-out theater productions, Because they understand that like it or not, understand it or not, we have to move forward with culture. And that is so amazing when you compare it to many American places where the traditional arts such as opera and classical music are treated in a museum-like way rather than a let's move the culture forward way. Finally, we're getting around to that in places like the Metropolitan Opera but it took a long time.
0: I love that whole notion that it's not to be put in a museum, but it's to be enjoyed and reinvigorated with a new generation and so on. When you think about Vienna, you've got the Vienna State Opera... And you've got the Vienna Philharmonic in the pit. I mean, it's like the all-star game every night of the year, and they make 300 performances a year. Apparently, they, they make a point to have different performances on successive nights, even if it means a lot of extra moving stage gear around so that people can enjoy all of that variety. And at the same time, they go to great lengths to make tickets available to students and poppers. I mean, what, for $5, you can get a standing room spot up on the top to hear some of the greatest opera in the world.
1: Well, actually, in the state opera, it's not on the top floor. The standing room is in the back of the main level. And the tradition there is that you have to get there very early and you bring a scarf and you tie your scarf to a pole or a place and that indicates that you've reserved it for yourself. That's how you know it. And a lot of Japanese come with beautiful scarves.
0: And a lot of local students enjoy a lot of great music
1: on a student's budget. True. Another thing I want to point out is that After performances in Vienna, people just don't go home. They go out and eat and they talk about it. Now, the wealthier people might go to a fancy restaurant, but there's a wonderful little Wurst stand that sells something called a Käse-Kreiner. is sort of a sausage with cheese in it, and people stand there after the performances, eating those and drinking beer (laughs) or cider and debating the opera performance for another hour and a half, including many of the standees. Those verst
0: stands are just great community centers, and you see people even in the cold of winter standing together deep into discussion about whatever they've enjoyed. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Fred Plotkin, and Fred Plotkin writes a guidebook to opera called Opera 101. He's got an incredible guide to Italian cuisine, and he's uh, got a website, fredplotkin.com. Fred, I know you like music, and I know you like to eat, and a lot of times we confuse Viennese cuisine with rustic Alpine cuisine, But you write that you have a different experience with enjoying the food of Vienna.
1: Well, one book I would love to write, but it's been hard to persuade publishers, is a Habsburg cookbook. In other words, the Habsburgs ruled over an empire that now is made of 15 different nations, ranging from the Baltic all the way down to the Adriatic, east to the Black Sea, west to Milan. And they drew all of these culinary traditions into Vienna as well as the flavoring and the spicings. Vini's cuisine is about being delectable and pleasurable rather than hearty, heavy, like Alpine food. And there are many wonderful dishes that reflect the cultures of all of the empire. There's a little restaurant I like in Vienna called the Goulash Museum, where they have 15 different types of goulashes based on recipes from different parts of the old Austro-Hungarian empire.
0: It's funny to hear you say you're... Trying to sell your publisher on the notion of a Habsburg cookbook, Habsburg just doesn't have much of a marketing sort of success story in our country, I guess. But uh, I understand. Let's what you're call it about. whipped cream cookbook. <laughs> now that would work. <laughs> Talk about uh, the Heurigen, this uh, wonderful Heurigen. New wine festival in the wine gardens.
1: All right. Now, how many places are there in the world where you can get on a streetcar in front of the State Opera and twenty minutes later be in a winery? And not just one winery that's there for tourists, but the whole edge of the 20th district of Vienna is hills with more than 700 hectares, that's like 2,500 acres, of planted wine grapes that are produced as wine. And all of these different wineries have restaurants called Heidegen, where you go and you drink the local wine, you eat delicious food, you hear music. One of them used to be where Beethoven lived. They all have history. Schubert used to go out to the Heutigen and compose. You could think that these are touristy, and a couple of them are, but most of them are really favored by the Viennese. And if you want to encounter them enjoying their lives, you just get on the streetcar and go to the Heutigen. I would never miss that experience in Vienna. Take us on a walk through the Nachtmarkt. The Nashmarkt is in the fourth district. In Paris, they have arrondissement, and in Vienna, they're called Bezirk or district. By the way, there's an old joke that Vienna is Paris without the French, and Paris is Vienna without the Viennese. The the cities are very similar, and they're somewhat rivals. I love them both. But the Nashmarkt reflects the 15 former republics and countries that are part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and you walk through there and you find magnificent spices, beautifully prepared foods, there's one man who's a vinegar maker. Vinegar not just for salad but as a condiment for all things so that you might have a quince vinegar or you might have a rosemary vinegar. And the Viennese use vinegar as a souring note, which is not to say that the dish is sour. But if you have fatty pork and you add a bit of, say, apricot or plum vinegar, it takes out the fat, gives a touch of the flavor. It's a remarkable experience. And it's right in front of the Theater an der Wien, this great opera house, and Beethoven lived right there. So when you walk through there, imagine that he, too, walked through the Nosh Mart. He didn't <laughs> like food. It was interesting. He probably was so focused on his music that he didn't pay attention, but we do. And walking through the Nosh Mart, Mm. Nosh means eat, Ah. you can discover very quickly how the Viennese eat.
0: I met a guy who was, like, evangelical about sauerkraut there.
1: How could you not be? (laughs)
0: Yeah, and uh, you're right. If you always (laughs) didn't like sauerkraut, wait until you get to Austria.
1: Or coffee. That's what I preach about is the coffee in Vienna.
0: Well, let's talk about coffee, because I know Starbucks went head-on-head with the ultimate coffee culture by putting their lead opening outlet right there across the street from the Tort Café. And there's a quite a discussion in Vienna about American chain coffee or the local coffee.
1: Well, I definitely think that Austrian coffee is superior because it's more delicate. It doesn't have the burnt taste, exaggerated taste, as Starbucks often does. But the roasting of Viennese coffee, which really comes from Trieste, if you think historically, Trieste, and it, now in Italy was the main port of Vienna. If you remember the sound of music, Captain von Trapp is in the Austrian Navy. Where did the Austrian Navy go? They were in Trieste. And all the coffee beans arrived in Trieste. They were roasted to be smooth, to be mild, fragrant, aromatic, a bit cinnamony, not that they add cinnamon, but just they would have that note or a touch chocolatey. And... They so beautifully refine the roasting process that when you drink a cup of Viennese coffee, the most famous brand is called Julius Meinl. It's heaven, and it goes perfectly with Viennese pastries. And the Viennese cafes are just a beautiful experience
0: uh, from a pastry and coffee point of view and just from an ambience point of view. It's sort of the neighborhood living room, and they, they're really experts at, at creating that, that whole experience. I'm always astounded at a Sunday morning in Vienna. What, what do you do to enjoy a Sunday morning in Vienna?
1: Well, Austria is a Catholic country, and they have churches that play beautiful music. Uh, St. Stephen's Dome is the most famous church in Vienna. I like the Thomaskirche, which is where Mozart worshipped. And you would go there on Sunday mornings, and they're always playing Mozart. And that's a wonderful way to start. And then I walk through the Hofburg, the gardens there, past the stables of the Lipizzaner stallions, And I go to the Kunsthistorisches Museum, the Great Art Museum of Austria, where they have a Sunday brunch. And I sit down and have a course. Then I go look at some paintings. I come back for another course. I go look at more paintings. In Austria, in Vienna on Sunday, you slow down. Everyone slows down. Stores are mostly shut. And therefore, you connect with yourself and you connect with history. Fred,
0: at least in my dreams right now, I am on a plane to Vienna. Danke schön, and auf
1: Wiedersehen. Bitte schön, und auf Wiedersehen.
0: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.